You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, today is April 20th, 2022. I'm Jordan Lofthouse, and I'm a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm also an associate program director of academic and student programs at the Mercatus Center. I'm happy to be chatting today with Dr. Don C. Shahar about his recent book, Why It's Okay to Eat Meat. Um, Donnie is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of New Orleans, and he's also a two-time alum of the Adam Smith Fellowship that we run here at Mercatus. So Donnie has authored many books and academic journal articles on the intersection of environmental ethics and political economy. My own research looks at the intersection of political economy and environmental issues, but more from the economic perspective rather than the philosophical one. So with that, uh, welcome, Donnie. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. So I'd like to jump into our discussion, but first I want to kind of briefly summarize what I took away from your book, and then I can let you maybe fill in any important parts that I missed, or we can, you know, kind of go from there. But the root of the book as I read it is many people say that eating meat is morally wrong and that we shouldn't do it, shouldn't eat it. Um, your book pushes back against the many arguments that eating meat is either immoral or unethical. So um, there are several questions that Donnie brings up when considering the morality of eating meat. The first question is, is that wrong in principle to eat meat? Um, this view is called ethical vegetarianism. Uh, Donnie in the book writes that ethical vegetarianism is based on valid concerns, but the arguments for this view are inconclusive sometimes contradictory or can sometimes come to repugnant conclusions. So we'll get uh, more into those specific arguments later if we want to. Uh, second, if it's not wrong in principle to eat meat, then another big question is, is it wrong to eat meat that isn't produced according to rigorous moral standards? So Donnie calls people with this view conscientious omnivores, and conscientious omnivores have at least four concerns, animal welfare, worker welfare, environmental welfare, and public health concerns. So for example, animals may suffer unduly when they're being raised and then slaughtered. Um, workers in the meat industry may be subject to poor conditions and they may receive low wages, which could have you know, moral implications, moral baggage, something to consider there. Um, meat production can, can and does lead to many environmental problems and those problems seem to carry moral weight and then large-scale farming can also lead to the emergence of diseases, which can affect human and animal well-being. Affecting the well-being can have, you know, moral baggage too. So a conscientious omnivore would say that it's immoral to eat meat unless that meat was produced with sufficient care for animals, workers, the environment, and public health. So again, kind of like the other arguments for ethical vegetarianism, the arguments for conscientious omnivorism are rooted in valid concerns, but Donnie pushes back and says that those arguments are not completely persuasive, which we can discuss a bit more later. Um, ultimately, Donnie concludes that a person can eat meat, even if that meat is produced unethically and still be acting morally. So, I mean, kind of my so what, the quote unquote, so what from the book is that um, the appropriate response to the fact that many of the things we consume, like meat, but you know, potentially many other things, are associated with problems is to, as Donnie writes, to devote ourselves to action. For most of us, far more action than we're accustomed to taking. A sensible approach to activism is selective, focusing on certain problems and allowing many opportunities to pass by untaken. So uh, it's from the conclusion, but some of my favorite um, sentences in the whole book were right there in the conclusion. I just want to share them really quickly. Uh, 
As we decide how to answer the call of the world's many problems, we should expect that what counts as the best form of activism for us will likely be different from what's best for others. Vegetarian, vegetarianism seems no different from countless other forms of activism in this respect. If we really care about responding sensibly to the innumerable ills that surround us, we'll confront the difficult task of deciding which problems to tackle, how, and how much. And we'll accept that once we've carried out our intentions, our efforts will leave a great many problems unaddressed. So <laughs> that was kind of a, a longer explanation than maybe I was hoping. But uh, so, Donnie, is there anything that maybe I missed in there that you hoped a reader would take away or any big points that you want to highlight at this point? No, I mean, I think that was a, a great summary. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for reading the book so carefully. Um, I think the the big sort of punchline of the book is a kind of argument for maybe a moral division of labor. Um, so you know we we might think about um, about the problems having to do with our meat industry as you know this grave tragedy that that we see unfolding around us uh, that we are personally helping to contribute to in certain ways by. Um, by eating its products, uh, and you know, vegetarians see this as as something that is very important for each of us to respond to, um, and on an individual level. And in a way, right, their their arguments are similar to arguments that are made by a lot of different kinds of activists who who are worried about a lot of different kinds of problems. So in the context of climate change, in the context of uh, you know, racial injustice, in the context of, um, you know, of many different problems, uh, you have people seeing a problem unfolding, um, in many cases being able to trace certain connections from that problem to, to individuals' lives uh, and saying, you know, everybody's got to do something. Uh, to, to arrest this problem. And basically the, the kind of position that I'm defending in the book is that it's okay for people to not try to, to tackle every problem in some way in their lives, but actually it, it's not just okay, but in a way desirable for people to become specialists, right? And, and focus on tackling certain kinds of problems and maybe do nothing about lots of other kinds of problems. And so if you think about this, you know, by analogy to the division of labor more broadly, um, you know, as a society, it is very imperative that we have food, that we have medicine, that we have education, right? But the solution to that problem uh, is not for everybody to, you know, do a little farming, do a little healing, do a little teaching. Um, rather, it's, it's to have, you know, some people become doctors, some people become farmers, some people... Uh, become teachers, uh, and we don't say that you know the teachers are doing something wrong because they're they're not also farming um, and and vice versa. Uh, the The important thing is for people to to be you know tackling some part of this shared challenge, and and hopefully you know as as people do that in lots of different ways, um, we will collectively make make progress on, on these various problems that we face. And so vegetarianism comes out, uh, I argue, looking like one route that people can legitimately take, but where I think vegetarians go wrong is claiming that it's a route that everybody has an obligation to take uh, rather than just sort of one option um, that, that could be legitimately not taken in favor of other options. Yeah, that's great. And I really like that phrase, moral division of labor. Uh, I kind of want to dig into that a little bit deeper really quickly. So I liked your analogy of like the teacher. We don't, we don't fault a teacher for not being a farmer. Uh, but I'm wondering, a teacher is a teacher, but also can serve many other roles. So like the division of labor is important, but there is kind of a, a limit to the division of labor which even Adam Smith talked about in The Wealth of Nations. I'm wondering, even if people don't have a moral obligation to be a vegetarian, how much of a moral obligation do they have to 
you know, when the cost is sufficiently low, cut back on eating meat? Yeah, so I think, um, I think that, you know, in general, we should all be on the lookout for opportunities to, you know, to contribute a little bit more uh, at low cost to ourselves. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, right, you know, if, if there is an opportunity to, to make a, an important impact by, you know, doing something that really comes at no cost to you, um, by all means do that. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the, the other side of that equation is that, you know, not eating a particular burger um, doesn't really make that much of an impact, right, in itself. And so, you know, even if the cost is low, I mean, I would argue it makes no impact in itself. Uh, and so, you know, even if the cost is relatively low, uh, the benefit is also relatively low. Um, and so, you know, I think that there is still a kind of, um, a kind of, uh, you know, decision to be made there about whether this, this makes sense. But I also think, you know, the bigger thing is um, focusing on, you know, a specific action, you know, at a, at a particular meal or whether or not a person, you know, eats something on a particular day is not really, uh, I think, faithful to the moral relationship that people have with their, you know, their dietary decisions. Um, I think one of the one of the things that that people worry about in the context of thinking about the costs of giving up meat or eating less meat is just having to think about your meals as an ethical decision, having to you know relate to your day to day life in a different way than you're used to, um, and that can be kind of costly to people in a way that uh, that just you know, not eating a particular food on a particular day, you know, might not be any, any big deal. Um, but trying to take on a different kind of disposition and trying to, to navigate your life in a way that's, that's more sort of uh, intentional, um, rather than just being able to go about your day to day uh, activities. I think that's the kind of thing that might lead people not to want to take on that particular kind of action. Um, but by all means, right, if somebody, uh, if somebody thinks that, you know, this is genuinely a low cost way of, of contributing to an important cause, which, which I think it is, uh, you know, then, then people should absolutely be encouraged to take it on, just like people should be encouraged to take on low, low cost forms of activism, you know, throughout their lives. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'd say something similar about getting in the habit of taking shorter showers or turning out the lights in your house or, you know, any of these other kinds of small things that maybe they don't make a huge difference on the margin. Um, maybe they don't make really any difference uh, just as you as an individual. But, you know, when lots of people take on these kinds of activities, it does, it does make an impact. Um, and if it's, if it's no big deal to you, then, uh, then that's a, that's a good thing. It's a way that you can help contribute to something that's valuable in the world, um, and you know, not really, uh, not really inconvenient to yourself. I think that's uh, that's something we should all be on the lookout for. Yeah. So I guess I have a question about that: these small forms of activism. So, in some of my research that I've done, I look at kind of unintended consequences that arise, largely from public policies, but I think we can apply it to activism too. So if people have a notion of activism that they want to, like, they have, they perceive a problem in the world, they want to do their small part to help solve it. If that notion or perception happens to be perhaps fully or partially misinformed, that activism might actually be counterintuitive or counterintentional to the things that they're, the, the problem that they're trying to solve. How do you think through kind of the unintended consequences that can arise from maybe noble intentions. Yeah, so I think I think that there is a legitimate concern in that 
um, in that domain when it comes to, to these issues of, um, of reforming our meat industry and, and, uh, and other things. I mean, sometimes I, I have the worry that, you know, if you, if you wanted to take a problem that is as universally worried about as the issue of factory farming and guarantee that nothing would ever get done about it. You would convince people that the way to take action on that issue would be to take on like really burdensome, uh, really unattractive lifestyle changes that would require you to give up on major things that are important to your day-to-day -day enjoyment of your life that you know are important to your cultural identity, your uh, your sense of, of inclusion in, in, you know, your family, your friends, uh, and, you know, not just say, look, no, what you put in your mouth is irrelevant. Uh, what we need to do is, is pass regulations to, you know, to make it illegal to, to operate farms in this way. Um, you know, that's a worry that I have is that, you know, by focusing on this very specific form of activism, vegetarians are, are taking a problem that I think a lot of people care about, m many more people than actually are vegetarian. Uh, and basically, you know, I don't want to say guaranteeing, but uh, making it much more likely that this, this issue will be kind of marginalized as, as a kind of fringe issue or, or something that only a very tiny minority of the population, um, you know, is really willing to take action on. Uh, and so, yeah, I think there is a kind of worry here about unintended consequences. I mean, I don't think that there's an issue of unintended consequences so much that like vegetarianism in itself will turn out to be harmful. Yeah. Uh, you know, like that's not really the issue so much. It's not like in the context of, let's say, poverty relief, where you know, people try and go and solve the problem of poverty. And uh, in some cases, they actually make things worse for the very people they're trying to help. I don't really think there's that kind of issue. But I do worry that, um, that there is a kind of displacement of, uh, of other forms of action where, um, you know, people become convinced that if you really care about animals, you really care about workers, you really care about the environment, then you have to give up meat. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, most people aren't willing to do that. And so they just don't get involved in this particular issue at all. Uh, whereas what you could be saying is, look, like, if you care about this issue, giving up meat is one, one way to take action on it. Um, it's not the only way to take action on it. And maybe it's not even the most important way to take action on it. Uh, one thing I have in, in a, a note in the book, um, I'm not really sure how much weight to put on this, which is why I kind of stuck it in, in the back. Uh, but it's striking that if you look at measures of how much lobbying money is spent um, by the meat industry in the United States uh, on, you know, uh, federal and, and state elections, it's, it's on the order of like, you know, tens of millions of dollars uh, in, in election years. But like, if you're talking about tens of millions of dollars, and you've got in the United States, you know, several million vegetarians, um, tens of millions of dollars is not a lot of money. Uh, it, it should be possible. I mean, if every vegetarian were willing to throw in like a hundred bucks, uh, they could easily outspend the meat industry uh, in terms of their, you know, their ability to, to throw money into politics. But as a matter of fact, like most vegetarians don't contribute $100 a year to politics. Uh, and so they're routinely outspent and out lobbied uh, and out maneuvered by you know, the industry. And so policy decisions continue to be very disproportionately shaped by the narratives that the meat industry uh, you know, promulgates and not heavily influenced by you know what I think many more people uh, think are, are really serious problems. And so you know that's an example where 
you know, people feel like they're doing their part to try to tackle this really important set of problems um, in a particular way. Uh, but, but there is a kind of concern that, um, that by focusing in this way, they're kind of displacing another form of, of action that, that might have more of a, a potential to make a lasting change. Yeah, so this conversation kind of reminds me of something that I was reading uh, in Eleanor Ostrom yesterday, that just because we see a problem and need to engage in collective action to solve it, that doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the institutional arrangements um, that are best equipped to solve them. There could be a hundred different types of institutional arrangements that might effectively solve a problem. There could be many institutional arrangements like we were just talking about that are intended to solve the problem, but actually make it worse. And so I think that's really where the political economy comes in is if we solve this through certain political means or attempt to solve a problem through certain political means, there could be a lot of deadweight costs. Um, there could be opportunity costs. The money that was spent on the lobbying and everything like that could have been spent more effectively solving the problem in a different way rather than you know the political arena so uh yeah there's a lot to think about there yeah i agree i mean i think that um one of the things that is particularly challenging about this issue that um that maybe is less challenging in the context of some of the issues that that Ostrom was, um, was more maybe typically associated with is that in a way, you know, it, it doesn't really count as a solution. I mean, maybe it counts as a little bit of a solution, but not, not the solution for people to kind of carve off their own domain of reality and, you know, solve these problems amongst themselves, right? So if you've got, you know, a small community of people who are maybe practicing veganism and they, uh, they operate their own, you know, vegan co-op and they're not creating these problems that the rest of us are, are collectively giving rise to. There is a sense in which that, you know, they're doing good. They're, they're reducing the severity of the, the problems that exist. Um, but in a way, what they'd really like to have happen is for other people not to be allowed to do things a different way. Um, they want factory farming stopped. They don't just want their food to stop coming from factory farms. And so in a way, right, this is, this is a problem that's maybe similar to, to other maybe more paradigm paradigmatically ethical problems that we, we might face in a society um, where, you know, it's not just that I want myself to, to not be involved in this problem, but I, I also want other people to stop doing it too. Um, and so in that respect, uh, a political solution of some kind seems, you know, uniquely called for where, you know, it, it seems important that the factory farmers not be allowed to do what they're doing. Um, and that's, that's something that, uh, that in the context of thinking about like polycentric solutions to, um, to all sorts of different kinds of problems like natural resource problems or other sorts of communal governance problems. Um, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, how are we gonna police our community, there's a sense in which it, it solves that problem if you and your neighbors come together and, and find an effective way of policing just your area, even if other people you know, are doing things differently. Or you know, if you are worried about overusing the water in a river, um, you know, if you and the other water users in your area come together to allocate rights over the water, that solves the problem. Um, but it, you know, as long as somebody is operating, you know, a factory farm that is inhumanely raising thousands of animals a day, uh, you know, that I, I think there's, there still remains a problem that, that folks are reasonably going to be worried about, um, even if they themselves are not, uh, not sort of personally involved in that. 
Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the concept of polycentricity because one of Eleanor Ostrom's last papers was on polycentric solutions to climate change, which might be like the biggest problem and the most difficult problem to solve. And it's interesting that, of course, there's going to be all different levels of government and different levels of government policies that are going to be made, but it's not just a government problem. I think you're going to have to have all different levels of government and the market sphere, all different types of corporations doing different things, people putting their money where their mouth is, and then also civil society, you know, nonprofits, NGOs, all these different types of things, clubs, churches, whatever, also working. So it's like this giant kind of uh, overlapping, undulating mass of different attacks at a problem. And it's not just a, there's not one panacea that can solve this. It's not like a federal law that bans factory farming would solve all of the ethical dilemmas in the meat industry. So yeah, I, uh, there's a lot to think about there. I do want to ask a question really quick about the animal welfare stuff. That was actually one of the first questions I had written on my list of questions that I wanted to ask you was, I don't really know how to think about animal welfare standards. Um, in the book, you talk about regulatory agencies and private sector organizations, how they evaluate animal welfare standards in the meat industry. But what what's the margin at which poor animal welfare standards become acceptable animal welfare standards? Because it doesn't seem like there's just two discrete groups. There's like animal torture and then there's like sunshine and rainbows. It seems like there's a spectrum of... Um, different ways that we can raise and slaughter animals going from probably the most inhumane that I think most people would find, you know, unacceptable to ones that maybe most people would find acceptable. How do you think through kind of that spectrum and what's the, what, what's kind of that tipping point? What's that margin where it goes from unethical to ethical? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one that, uh, Maybe frustratingly, um, I don't really know how to answer. Uh, it, I agree with you that you know there there's a kind of gradation here, and not only is there a gradation, but there's a gradation along lots of different dimensions, right? So you know, animal welfare isn't just this one thing, but there are all sorts of different kinds of considerations that go into whether an animal is, is being well cared for. Um, you know, how much space does the animal have? Uh, you know, what kinds of, uh, you know, social environments are the animals being kept in? Do the animals have access to the outdoors? Um, you know, even things like when they are uh, capturing the animals to transport them to the slaughtering facility, you know, how long is it okay to have the animals without food uh, while they're being transported? Um, you know, if, the, if you're working with chickens, you know, you, you often will have chickens be carried uh, not just one at a time to be loaded into the truck for transport, but mo more than one at a time. And how many chickens is it okay to carry at once, right? I mean, so these are things where at some level, right, there's got to be a line where, uh, where things are unacceptable. And then maybe there's a kind of gray area where it's not clearly unacceptable, but it's also like not sunshine and rainbows. And then maybe there's also a line where it's like, this is clearly sufficiently sunshine and rainbows that we don't need to worry about it at all. Uh, and at some level, you know, I, as a non-veterinary professional, non-animal scientist, am kind of having to rely on the judgments of other people. Um, and unfortunately, the judgments of other people who disagree amongst themselves uh, and who insist that, you know, they have the right view on this. Uh, or at least who insists that, that their view is, is a legitimate view. Um, and so in the book, you know, what I do is I kind of, as you know, just kind of describe a, a 
few different kinds of approaches that um, that people have taken, mostly by way of illuminating the diversity that exists uh, with respect to these standards. And so, you know, I don't know how to draw that line in any kind of decisive and satisfying way. Um, the reason I think that I don't have to draw that line in order to get to the judgment that there is a problem um, is kind of, well, there are kind of two reasons. The first is that if you look at the standards that the industry self-imposes versus the standards that independent certifiers of animal welfare have come up with, the industry standards are laxer than the independent standards along dimensions that if you look at them, it's like, well, actually that kind of seems like it probably would, it would be important. Um, so the independent certifiers are, are demanding things, you know, like chickens getting more time in the dark to sleep per day. Um, you know, we know that uh, if you, if you expose chickens to more light, um, they'll grow faster, they'll eat more. Um, you know, it's more profitable, but it's not as good for their bodies, um, you know, and their, and their well-being. And so, you know, it's good for them to have more darkness. How much darkness do you need? Like, well, the independent certifiers say you need this amount and the industry says you need less. Uh, and there are things like that, you know, in lots of different domains. Um, or like there's, uh, there's a certain kind of uh, issue with, for pigs, um, they'll often use their snouts to, uh, to root in the ground. It's a very normal behavior, but it can, uh, it can cause, um, it can cause various kinds of damage to, uh, to, to people's land. And so um, sometimes farmers will want to discourage the pigs from rooting you can do that by putting a ring in their nose that that makes it sensitive for them to root, and you know, and that is uh, it. It's an effective way of getting them to stop rooting. But a rooting is a very natural behavior for pigs. It's one of the things that they spend much of their time doing naturally. And you know, this is like a very sensitive and important part of the pig's body, sort of analogous to our hands. Um, and you know the the ring is is basically making it so they're not able to to use that comfortably. Um, and so you know most of the independent animal welfare organizations say no, you can't use a nose ring. Um, and the industry thinks that it's fine to use a nose ring. Uh, so these are kinds of issues where you say, all right, like I'm not an expert, but I can kind of see the problems with the standards that the industry has, has promulgated. But then the other thing is that the industry also doesn't enforce its own standards maximally strictly. So they have guidelines for what, what would count as appropriate animal welfare. And, you know, in some cases they are laxer than the animal, than the independent certifiers would be comfortable with, but they, they do have like a list of standards, but then when they audit, to see if people are complying with the standards, you only need to get a certain score on the audit in order to pass. And so you can be in violation of lots of different standards um, while still being held to have passed your audit. Um, and in some cases, the, the failures can be pretty significant. So like, you know, when you're looking at chickens coming into the, the plant for slaughter, uh, you know, there's a question of like, have the chickens been injured in the course of, of transportation? Like have they had broken bones from being handled too roughly? And like one of the standards is like, well, we don't wanna see broken bones on more than a certain percentage of the chickens, um, otherwise you lose points. Um, but like you can pass the audit even if like lots of chickens are, are showing up with broken bones from being handled too roughly. That means you lost some points, but you can lose those points and still pass. Um, and so that's a kind of thing where, you know, as somebody who's concerned about animal welfare, you say, look, the standard 
whether or not it's lax, the fact that it's okay for you to violate the standard and still be allowed to continue to operate the way that you're operating, um, that in itself tells me that there's a problem. So I guess my, my answer to your question, apologies for, uh, for answering at length, but, um, but even if you are kind of uncertain about exactly where to draw the line, it does seem like there are certain things where the industry standards are, are kind of coming apart from the independent standards uh, in a way that would be concerning. But then even if you were to defer to the industry's standards, it also just looks like they're not taking those standards seriously enough um, to give you confidence that the animals are being taken care of appropriately. Um, and so for that reason, I think it's, it's reasonable for somebody to look at what's going on in the meat industry and say, look, even if I'm not an expert on animal welfare, uh, I do have some, some real reason to be concerned about what's going on here. Cool. Hey, yeah, and I mean, obviously that's a difficult question and here's another one that may be as difficult or more difficult. So obviously I'm not looking for a concrete answer, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. So one of the arguments in the book is that many workers in the meat industry work in relatively harsh conditions and earn relatively low wages. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that, well, it seems to me that there's not an inherent moral problem, assuming that the workers willingly chose that course of action when they compared them to their relevant alternatives. So this is kind of similar to the um, arguments surrounding, well, both the eth ethical and economic arguments surrounding sweatshops. So again, sweatshops may be the best real world alternative that many people have. And since people willingly chose that course of action, they must have viewed it as their best choice. Obviously, um, those conditions are not ideal, but many things in the real world aren't ideal, actually, probably most things. Um, so uh, economists often think of terms, think of things in terms of second best outcomes, which you do mention in the book, um, I think in chapter five, but how do you think about kind of the economic and moral implications of workers, worker conditions in the meat industry or really any industry? Like how would we decide when a working condition or a wage treads into immoral waters? Yeah, I mean, so I agree with you that, um, that this is a, a super complex uh, issue for exactly the reasons that you raise. I mean, um, you know, one of the things that people worry about is that you've got these extremely vulnerable, uh, you know, economically disadvantaged people who are, you know, because of their vulnerability, uh, able to be kind of exploited and treated in really horrible ways um, and, you know, not, not leave. Uh, because the reality is that, you know, unfortunately, um, as you say, you know, this is the best option uh, among many bad options for, for a lot of these workers. And that makes it that makes it hard to to say. Look, it would be better if we just shut down, uh, you know, the the processing plant. Um, you know, that out of respect for the workers, we should shut down the processing plant or something like that, and send them off to uh, to whatever it was that they their second best option was, which which might have been you know far worse. Um, so, for for those kinds of reasons, I I agree that that this is a challenging issue and if you notice um, in the book I present uh, I present these concerns about about worker treatment because I think a, a lot of people um, worry about them it is an important part of what vegetarians are worried about um, but I don't really focus so much of the discussion on those issues um, I focus a lot more of the discussion on the animal welfare issues because I think that's that's an area where I think um, there isn't as much of a kind of uh, a valid counter argument to be made. Um, but I do think that you know all of that stuff notwithstanding, the the fact that workers are consenting doesn't completely take the moral issue off the table. Um, 
And I think that this is true in the context of, you know, sweatshops as well. So, you know, I think uh, the example that you gave was, was low wages, right? And, and I think that if you want to defend sweatshops, it can be tempting to, to focus on things like the fact that people are paid poorly or that they don't have benefits that, uh, that people in, you know, uh, your position, mine might, might think are, are appropriate or, or maybe they are, are put at certain kinds of risks that we might, you know, prefer to avoid. Those are things where, you know, you can kind of see that, that it, it would make sense for a worker in a particular kind of position to say, well, look, like, you know, my options are really bad. So I'm willing to take the low wage. I'm willing to take the, these certain risks. I'm willing to forego certain benefits. Um, but there are other kinds of treatment that I think are more sort of straightforwardly disrespectful and that we do see in the context of sweatshops and we, we have reason to worry about in the context of, um, you know, of, of uh, meat production as well, right? So, you know, not to, to make any particular accusations about particular things that are happening, but when you have vulnerable workers um, who you know, maybe can't really stand up for themselves, uh, it becomes possible for organizations to take advantage of those workers in other ways besides just paying them less, right? So forcing them to, to work overtime without compensation and when that was not agreed to from the outset. Uh, you know, when there are female workers, um, you know, sexually harassing them or provide, uh, you know, demanding sexual favors in order to, to keep their job. Um, these are kinds of things that go on, certainly in the context of sweatshops. Um, it's kind of hard to know, you know, what kinds of abuses happen, what, what particular industries and what particular facilities. Um, but I think these kinds of concerns that workers are being just directly disrespected and where their, uh, their vulnerable position makes them unable to, to kind of stand up for themselves. Um, these are things that I think we have very good reason to worry about, even if maybe the solution to it is not, you know, like shut down the facility and, and have them go unemployed because maybe that's even worse. Um, but where I do think that, you know, as we are forming a moral appraisal of, of an industry and its operations, uh, it's appropriate for us to, to be on the lookout for these situations where you have um, lots of really seriously vulnerable people putting themselves into a position where uh, you know, they, are, they are at risk of, of being disrespected in, in serious ways. Um, and I think, you know, uh, even if we don't want to shut down the facility, it does make sense to, to maybe, you know, look the, the employers in the eyes and say, you know, look, are you guys, are you guys doing this stuff? Uh, if so, cut it out. Um, and if not, find ways to, you know, to establish publicly that you are operating in a decent way. Um, you know, show us that you are actually taking your workers' uh, dignity seriously. Show us that you are, uh, are, are not um, doing any of these things that are, are really unconscionable. Um, I think it makes sense for, for consumers and for other citizens to try to hold companies accountable in that kind of way. Yeah, that's great. And I think probably anybody of any philosophical ideology um, I think you talked about how just a second ago, like basically employers not honoring contracts or promises. I mean, I think anyone would find that to be an immoral action, especially if these people are uh, vulnerable, maybe don't have the resources to fight back when a promise is broken. Yeah, that's going to be, uh, I think both leads to economic and ethical concerns when contracts aren't honored. Um, I think we have time for maybe just one more question. And uh, I want to be a little more maybe forward looking with this one. Um, so in chapter four of the book, uh, you implicitly and explicitly talk about the concepts of entrepreneurship, profit motives, and the spontaneous order of the market. Um, kind of through this market process, P 
people who want to eat meat have the opportunity to eat meat. People who don't want to eat meat um, have an opportunity to find substitutes. Um, so I'm wondering what you see as the role of entrepreneurs and innovators as they relate to the ethics of eating meat. Uh, for example, what implications do meat-like substitutes like the Impossible Burger or um, lab-creative meats, what kind of implications do those have both economically and ethically? Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, in a way, um, the whole book, you know, is about moral entrepreneurship. Um, so I was talking about the, the division of moral labor earlier and, you know, you can kind of see the role of, of each participant in that division of labor as, as carrying out an important entrepreneurial function, right? Identifying a need and, and figuring out how best to, to take advantage of, of their own specialized combination of skills and experiences and connections and, and knowledge to, uh, to, to best meet that need. Um, and I think that, you know, vegetarians are an example of this and, and also, you know, the innovators who, who maybe might someday make vegetarianism obsolete, right? Because they've, they've found ways to, to solve this problem um, in some other way, right? So, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that 100 or 200 years from now, people will still be eating meat produced the way that meat is, is produced today. Um, either, you know, we'll be eating synthetic meat or meat substitutes, or, you know, maybe people will have found ways to, to more efficiently produce, um, you know, meat uh, from animals, but, um, but without creating the kinds of problems that we see today. Um, or maybe obviously some combination of those things. Uh, but that kind of world doesn't come about automatically, right? Uh, there are people who have to figure out, well, how are we gonna do these things differently? Um, and there's also a, a degree of entrepreneurship uh, involved in, in the policy arena as well, right? So um, if you are, you know, if you hope to, to create a world in which people are not allowed to, uh, to treat animals, let's say the way that animals are currently being treated, or even to, to create disincentives for having certain kinds of impacts the way that, that, um, that meat producers uh, currently are able to. So, you know, certain kinds of environmental impacts, for example, um, there aren't really strong disincentives in place to, to make that um, to make that costly. And, you know, there is an element of entrepreneurship involved in, in designing new arrangements to, um, to make it harder for people to get away with harmful or disrespectful behavior. Um, and so in a way, I guess the whole thing boils down to a need for entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship of many different forms. And I think maybe the, the bottom line for me is just that you know, what an individual has an obligation to do in terms of, you know, how they exercise their own entrepreneurship um, is, uh, is maybe not sort of just determined by some universal requirement that applies to everyone in just the same way. Um, but rather, you know, it's, it's okay for people to say, look, you know, maybe my thing is the lab grown meat, or maybe my thing is uh, environmental reforms, or maybe my thing is something else, right? And maybe I, I sit in the background and I don't really take action on the meat issue at all. And maybe I'm a criminal justice advocate. Uh, and I applaud the efforts of, you know, of vegetarians and, and meat tech pioneers and policy activists in, in that area, but you know, that's not really my thing. Um, and I guess my view is just that uh, as long as, as people are playing that entrepreneurial role and doing something to try to take an action, uh, you know, obviously worrying about some of these issues of counterproductiveness and, um, and unintended consequences that you mentioned earlier, but but are, are doing something constructive and smart, um, you know, 
I think everyone uh, needs to kind of just think about how they want to fit themselves into that ecosystem of, of action um, and maybe not, uh, not try to take on every kind of issue at once. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so one final question. Uh, now that Why It's Okay to Eat Meat is published, what projects are you currently working on and where do you see your research going from here? Yeah, so I mean, as as our discussion, I think, has uh, has helped bring out a lot of my thinking about this isn't really just about the meat issue specifically, um, but really is kind of driven by this uh, this idea about a kind of division of moral labor more generally. Um, and so one of the things that I'm trying to do is to try to develop that idea in uh, in a more sort of general sense. So right now I'm actually working on a book um, with uh, another environmental ethicist, Marion Hurtikin, uh, out of uh, Colorado College. Uh, and we are gonna be debating whether the view applies in the context of uh, climate change and individual action with respect to climate change. Um, but you know, looking further into the future, uh, I am kind of increasingly wanting to, to develop this as a more general view about what it means to be an ethical person in a world that's full of problems um, and, and defending a, a view on what that looks like that is maybe very different from the way that a lot of people think about activism in terms of you know, uh, doing something about lots of different problems versus uh, maybe being a specialist in a much more narrow range of problems and just completely ignoring lots of, of very worthy problems. Um, I think that's counterintuitive for a lot of people, uh, very different from how a lot of activists present themselves and their causes. Um, but I think it, it's right. And I think that, um, that we will uh, make a lot more progress together on the problems that we face if we take a little bit more seriously the, the importance of specializing uh, and the importance of, of becoming you know, more productive and more efficient in the way that specialization uh, makes possible. So that's the, that's the kind of uh, you know, project going forward. Um, so yeah, uh, keep, keep an eye out for those, uh, those future products um, on the way in the, in the years to come. Great. Well, Donnie, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me today. And I'm excited to see where your uh, work goes from here. Thank you so much again. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.